0: Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the Executive Director of Coastal States Organization and the host of this podcast. I am really excited to start this podcast series on the 50th anniversary of the Coastal Zone Management Act, the CZMA. Uh, This is a uh, defining bill in the history of our country and certainly the history of the conservation movement and the history of the coast. And over the next five uh, podcasts, next five episodes, we're going to really dig into the weeds about what the Coastal Zone Management Act does, how it's defined our uh, coastal history, and look ahead to our coastal future. On this episode, I am just thrilled to be joined by two folks who I consider um, mentors and, and icons in the coastal field. Uh, Tony McDonald and Rick Spinrad. Tony McDonald is currently the director of the Urban Coast Institute at Monmouth University and is actually a predecessor of mine as a past um, past executive director at Coastal States Organization. And Dr. Rick Spinrad uh, has held Numerous roles uh, within the NGO and the private sector, but really, he's his background has come from academia, where he has uh, worked at Oregon State University and has had numerous roles in at NOAA and currently serves as the administrator of NOAA. So I'm really excited to have both of both of these guys on. Before we uh, dig into the questions with them, want to take a quick second to hear from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by. LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion want to support the discussion and promote your company we have sponsorship packages available now email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com that's chloe at coastalnewstoday.com hope to hear from you and enjoy the show Okay, well, let's talk about the Coastal Zone Management Act. Uh, but before we even talk about the Coastal Zone Management Act, I want to hear a little bit about, uh, from, from Rick and then Tony. So you both had amazing backgrounds. I'd love to hear a little bit more about each of you and, and how your coastal journey evolved. How did you get interested in coastal management? How has your coastal career evolved to where it is today? Um, Dr. Spinrad, why don't we start with you?
1: Yeah, thanks, Derek. And as your intro suggested, uh, the short answer to your question is that I just can't keep a job. I've had many different jobs in academia, NGOs, uh, government and industry, in fact. And I I think that's that's the answer to your question. I knew at an early age that I wanted to be involved with ocean sciences and ended up getting a degree in oceanography and doing what you might call the traditional academic path, postdoc, and then working towards a faculty appointment and early on realized I had interests in things like program management. Uh, and so I got into, govern- into the government working for a variety of different agencies. It wasn't until I came over to NOAA to head up the National Ocean Service that I started getting more involved in the policy side. And I've got to say that the technical background that I had really uh, fed nicely into building a, a policy Uh, portfolio. And of course, when you run the National Ocean Service, you have responsibility for everything from the coastal zone uh, management program to the uh, sanctuaries program and and the nearest the National Ocean Research Reserves. And so it was by virtue of, if you will, on-the-job training that I got more and more involved in those issues. And then got pulled into a number of higher-level national, federal, and even intergovernmental activities, uh, such as the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, where policy issues and coastal zone management writ large were, uh, in many cases, the predominant elements of the portfolio. So it's really through that variety of different jobs that I've held an exposure to the issues and the needs for policy development and policy execution uh, that I got uh, a real passion for the issues of uh, coastal zone management.
0: Thanks. How about you, Tony?
2: Yeah, I also have kind of a uh, a kind of a, a divergent pathway that brought me uh, I like to say back to the coast. You know, I think whatever all life emerged from the ocean and I think uh at my aspiration, hopefully I'll end up uh, running the bait shop here in Belmar, New Jersey eventually is the pinnacle of my career, but I would say, you know, I I really got through this a little bit um, uh, untraditionally. I was a lawyer in the city of New York and for the city of New York for quite a while. Um, And I first got exposed to coastal management directly as I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1987 to become the uh, environmental Affairs Legislative Director for Mayor Koch from New York, and I started getting involved increasingly with marine, environmental, and coastal issues. We were dealing with issues having to do with the ocean dumping of sewage sludge, and back in the, the bad old days where they were burning marine debris out in the ocean. I mean, it was really a, a, a incredible time because I think there was a real heightened attention to the importance of protecting the coast and the ocean. So I kind of moved from there and. In, increasingly got more involved directly with uh, coastal issues and coastal management. I moved from the City of New York to be the director of environmental affairs for the American Association of Port Authorities. I expect the importance of marine and maritime commerce will come up in this conversation later today. But increasingly, I started working with NOAA on a variety of issues. I was on a national advisory committee for looking at the strategic plan for the National Marine Sanctuaries Program. Um, I increasingly were sort of involved with a whole variety of issues um, in D.C. around coastal law and policy and came to know the Coastal Zone Management Act. And again, as you mentioned, Derek, I eventually became the executive director at Coastal States. So uh, as you might imagine that became a full-time job and one that I was just a fantastic education and opportunity for me. And that's where I met Rick originally. And then you know, after after almost 18 years in Washington, I really realized that I wanted to get back to the coast. So going back to a local community and coming to Monmouth University here in West Long Branch, New Jersey, where they were starting up an urban coast institute, just seemed like a great fit and a great kind of end to my arc coming back to kind of the communities I grew up in, um, to continue to work kind of more frontline on coastal management issues.
0: Thanks, Tony. I I love that it's, uh, you know, three New York city kids at heart who've now moved on to DC and elsewhere talking about coastal management. So hopefully we'll try not to bring too much of that New Yorker know-it-all to this conversation. Um, uh. (laughs) But Tony, you mentioned uh, you guys meeting when you were at at CSO. Can maybe – I know you guys go back a bit. Can you talk a little bit about how you met, sort of where you started working together?
2: Yeah. Rick, please, um, you know, pipe pipe in here if I don't get this right. But my recollection is uh, you would come in to be um, the assistant administrator at uh, the National Ocean Service and – it was a scientist coming in to run coastal management, which is an interesting intersection, and I think one that was useful. And I was at CSO at the time. So, you know, part of my job was to pester Rick on a regular basis. So we started talking about a whole variety of issues as we were looking at funding issues, legislation, state-federal relations. So we initially met then, but I was very fortunate um, when Rick, then the uh, then NOAA administrator, Connie Lautenbacher, I think, asked you, Rick, to go over to OAR to help um, you at had- done a good job at NOS, and I think you had an additional challenge over at OAR, but we continue to work uh, over the years on a whole variety of issues, um, including most recently when, when Rick was the uh, chair of the NOAA's Integrated Ocean Observing uh, System National Advisory Committee, and I was a member of that group. So it really has been a long and, and good run, and, and, and we're continuing to try to do what we can for the coast.
1: Yeah, I've got to say that. Um, I think in Tony's advanced stages, memory is going, because in fact, Tony, the very first time you and I met, I was working for Admiral Watkins. That was just before I came over to be the uh, head of the National Ocean Service. But this was back when Admiral Watkins was the uh, president of the Consortium for Ocean Research and Education Corps, which has now become the Consortium, Consortium for Ocean Leadership. And we at CORE were trying to figure out how we might build a National Ocean Partnership Program. And um, somebody said to me, you got to go talk to this guy named Tony McDonald at the Coastal States Organization. And we had some terrific discussions. And in fact, I would argue that the genesis of the National Ocean Partnership Program actually is attributable in large part to me pestering Tony back then uh, to get some good insights into what we need to incorporate in in our help with Congress in writing the uh, National Ocean Partnership Act. And then and then Tony has it uh, exactly right. We sort of switched roles. I ended up uh, coming back into the government and um, regularly engaged with, was pestered by, but I think pestered back to a certain extent, uh, Tony, and, and trying to make sure that NOAA's relationship with the states was as best as it could be and, and take advantage of the Real skills that existed in the States to complement what we were trying to do at NOAA. So, yeah, it's a uh... It's been, gosh, about 25 years now, I think, that Tony and I have been working together in
2: a variety of different
1: capacities, as he indicated.
2: Yeah, you do remind me of that, and thank you. And I do constantly need reminders of, of, of the past, but I, I do now, I just remember how excited we were when we were at Airly and we were trying to really have that first, I think it was the first conference on, on NOP and the uh, IU system. But I think we've come a long way uh, in those years, but um, it really was great to be part of that conversation as it was uh, starting out all those years ago.
0: Well, I think we've clearly established that you have the the bona fides to talk about uh, the history of coastal management, um, and so maybe let's let's pivot to that. This is going to be the first of a five part series on Coastal Zone Management Act, uh, celebrating its fiftieth anniversary. Um, we've got some really good guests who really are going to talk a lot about very specific details of the of the legislation. They're going to talk about the history of it, how it evolved. Um, In some ways, you guys are my my hype men. So, you know, I'd love your thoughts. Why is, in your opinion, the Coastal Zone Management Act important? Why is it still relevant 50 years after the law passed? Uh, Dr. Spinrad, I'll turn to you first.
1: Yeah. So, Derek, the short answer to your question is, it's where we live. Uh, By any measure, 40% of the population in our nation uh, lives in the coastal areas. The uh, coastal areas are twice as developed as the rest of the country from an economic perspective. Here's an interesting factoid, if the nation's coastal counties were an individual country, uh, that country would rank third in the world in gross domestic product. So it, it's where the uh, a lot of the economic activity is, it's where we live, it's also where there are great risks. Um, the, the populations of coastal counties face an enormous set of risks uh, from coastal storms, sea level rise in the decades to come. We just put out a report at NOAA on sea level rise where it's unequivocal. Uh, on the East Coast, for example, we're going to see 10 to 12 inches of sea level rise in the next 30 years. So we live here. Uh, we face risks here. We'd better have uh, a very serious consideration of how to manage and protect our coastal zones and that's what the Coastal Zone Management
0: Act is about. Thanks. I, I think the sea level rise report that Noah put out is is just so defining and I mean it is a bit scary, but I, I think it does really reflect why the Coastal Zone Management Act is important, because the Coastal Zone Management Act was a framework for how to manage the coast. So even though, you know, sea level rise was only being considered by some of the most, you know, visionary scientists 50 years ago, um, the framework that the CZMA set up in terms of the the way in which the federal government and the state governments collaborate to manage the coast works just as well now as it did then. Um, Tony, th- thoughts on the matter?
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, it's important to remember that you know CZMA came in into play after the Stratton Commission in the 70s. And that was really the beginning of really an aggressive effort uh, to really pass environmental laws, the Clean Water Act and others. So it really was, we were just beginning as a nation to grapple with um, the really um, historical problems of of pollution and other issues. And I think if you remember and think about it, um, CCMA as kind of this kind of more integrated approach, it wasn't only about the environment, it's not only a conservation act. It is also how we live sustainably at the ocean. So it was kind of ahead of its time. And even as the environmental laws have kind of gotten more sophisticated over the years, I think CCMA has always had a kind of holistic, kind of integrated approach to look not only at conservation, but also at local communities and how you live in a kind of in a really responsible way at the coast. And I think that's still, if anything, more relevant um, today for all the reasons that Rick was suggesting. Um, it's not only the environment changes, but the socioeconomic conditions change and population and development continue to increase at the coast and the importance of the coastal economy continues to be, if anything, more important than it was even in 1970.
0: Yeah, excellent point. Just the, the different uses on the coast just continue to expand. You know offshore wind, probably not something they were thinking about in, uh, the 1970s. Um, but it's still a major, you know, it's now it's a major part of what coastal managers have to, uh, consider and address. So the next, my next question to you guys is, is a bit more, even more basic, and that's about coastal management. So, uh, Tony, you mentioned the Clean Water Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act also passed, uh, 50 years ago. Those are fairly intuitive, right? Clean water, Marine mammals, you know, whales and, and sea lions and um, and the like, dolphins. You know, you get you sort of get why those were big, uh, big important bills. But coastal management is a little more complicated. Um, I'd be interested in, in hearing how you define, uh, you guys define coastal management. What is it? How does it? How does it serve? Uh, what what role does it serve when we talk about um, a sustainable or or resilient coast in the twenty first century?
2: So let me let me start off, if that's okay, Rick. You know, I I would say, you know, um, for me, uh, coastal management is uh, unique in a couple of ways. Um, One is um, it does acknowledge that essentially everybody's part of the solution and that it requires partnerships to do that. So at its core, it had a it continues to have a unique aspect, which is a federal state partnership, really thinking about setting national goals, but recognizing that really management happens at the local level and how do you engage states and localities in that process. I think that's really a fundamental aspect of CCMA that really doesn't exist, I think, in the same way in other environmental laws. Uh, I think another aspect, and this is kind of a little policy wonky, but I, I do think that it has its roots in things like the public trust doctrine, which is recognizing that the government has a role to play in protecting public trust resources, those ocean and coastal resources that belong to everybody? And how do we do that in a in a way that is sustainable over time. I think that's really pretty important and it's intuitive. Unlike the Clean Water Act, I do think that public trust and the importance of these public and shared resources is something that's very intuitive and core um, in the Coastal Management Act. And the other thing uh, that I think is kind of core to the Coastal Management Act, which is also unique, is the concept of consistency, that essentially federal and national guidelines, they can set in- provide incentives to the states, they can set standards, they can provide science and information, which NOAA does incredibly like nobody else. But it really is up to the states to really, they're in the best position to really know how to establish enforceable policies, which make sense for their geography, whether it's New Jersey or Alaska or Hawaii. So again, I think this concept that we as a nation can set broad objectives, but also work at the state and local level to implement them in a consistent way are the aspects of coastal management, which I think are unique and really, I think what could be more important uh, in the future.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd love to chime in. And I really appreciate uh, Tony's bringing out the public trust doctrine. I think that's an, an important concept because it's not the coastal public trust. It's all Americans. And that's an aspect that all too often doesn't get um, captured in discussions of coastal zone management. Uh, you know, this this bill, and it's also not political and in, inherently not political. It, this particular piece of legislation and, and also clean water act marine mammal protection role passed during the administration of that great environmental president richard nixon we tend to forget that but what sold it was the fact that it had value to all americans and that's true in the sense that yes 40 percent of our population will live in the coastal zones we work there but uh, as the head of our national ocean service nicole Buff likes to point out whether it's sneakers or bananas, and you happen to live in Iowa or Idaho or Oklahoma, you are dependent on the viability, the economic stability, if you will, of our coasts, the resilience of our coasts, uh, given that the vast majority, over 90% of international trade comes through our coastal ports. So we work there, we live there, trade happens there. And of course, you've got to talk about the value of the coast in terms of uh, uh, recreation and tourism. We do tend to visit them regardless of where we live. So all these aspects of American life are part of the concept behind coastal zone management. I like to talk about it, the bumper sticker, if you will, for me is lives, livelihoods, and lifestyles. And the Coastal Zone Management Act addresses these in in truly uh, incredible fashion. I, I really appreciate Tony's alluding to the federal consistency, that's a mind-blowing concept that the states have primacy over the feds as long as they've got a, uh, an approved coastal zone management plan. And then that allows for development of policy, it allows for conduct of research, training, working with stakeholders. And you know my final thought on this is that we ought to consider what, where we would be if we didn't have a CZMA. And so by any measure the the value of what CCMA affords us is extraordinary. We know that every dollar invested in mitigation strategies consistent with CCMA saves about $6 in future costs and and even more specifically we look at we look at uh, losses avoided. So one study that was done looked at mitigation projects in North Carolina that were implemented before Hurricane Matthew. And the conclusion was that those projects uh, avoided losses of estimated 200 to $235 million. All of that is made possible by the Coastal Zone Management Act and the programs incumbent with it.
0: So much great stuff to to potentially unpack there. I think the, the line that struck me was lives livelihoods and lifestyle. The coast is instrumental in each of those, and, and coastal management is, is ensuring that all of the values that support lives, livelihoods and lifestyles are are maximized to the extent possible. Um, so Dr. Spinner, my next my next question is is for you. Uh, you often speak of your three top priorities as NOAA administrator and for NOAA as making sure that NOAA can serve as the, the go-to for all federal climate science. Um, to advance equity and diversity in NOAA's tools, resources, and programmatic work, and advance uh, advancing and building the new blue economy. Um, you know, I'd love your thoughts on on how the CZMA plays into any of those. But I think perhaps I'm most interested in your your discussion around the new blue economy. Could you talk a little bit about uh, talk about that and sort of how coastal zone management and coastal management plays into the new blue economy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps best to start that by uh, taking just a moment to explain uh, what I mean by the new blue economy. So uh, most listeners will be familiar with the definition of the blue economy to include uh, everything from tourism to commercial shipping to sustainable fisheries. Yes, those are key components of the blue economy, but it's only in the last several decades that we've had, had the capability to build an economy around knowledge. Uh, We now have systems, Tony alluded to the role he and I played in advising the federal government for the integrated ocean observing system. Well, were it not for IUs, as we call it, we wouldn't have the kind of information that allows us to provide the sound science that will be used to make decisions about zoning, about coastal resilience, about habitat restoration, all of which are key ingredients. They're almost like the DNA, if you will, of the Coastal Zone Management Act. And so the new blue economy, that is to say a knowledge-based economy, is the one that ultimately in building a climate-ready nation allows us to take, uh, in our case, NOAA's climate products and services, work with partners as developed through the execution of the Coastal Zone management programs and really give people and communities the tools that they need to tackle, especially now the impacts of climate change. So CZMA has been the uh, sort of connective tissue. It's been the catalyst for taking many of these capabilities and applying them to solutions. And that is at the heart what the new blue economy is.
0: It's a fascinating concept, the sort of knowledge-based or information-based economy, so much of what happens on the coast. You mentioned 40% of the United States population lives in a coastal county, and knowing what happens on the coast and and how the coast is evolving, changing, weather, tides, inundation, that is driving – Billions, if not trillions, of dollars of of decisions in terms of where to invest in infrastructure. So I, I really like that um, concept, and I'm excited to see how that evolves uh, as you as you push NOAA into that sphere. I guess uh, sort of we're, we're sort of getting towards the end, and so my my final question is also again going to be for you, uh, Doctor Spinrad, but certainly Tony, happy to have you chime in here too. You mentioned your background was was science, and you're an oceanographer, um, and you've sort of evolved into a policy person, and so. For those listeners that might be sort of tuning into this to get a sense of what the CZMA is, why do you think it's important for um, scientists, coastal practitioners, uh, to learn more about the Coastal Zone Management Act? Why is it important for the the science crowd who are absolutely critical to learn more about the policy and and, and CZMA in, in particular?
1: Well, Derek, you know I'd, I'd say it goes both ways. I think uh, CZMA is critical for scientists because the level of accountability for science. Taxpayers are paying for research, they're paying for scientific products. And let's be honest, the taxpayers are not paying for that reprint that goes into the highly esoteric scientific journal. That's a metric for the scientists, but in the end, the taxpayers wanna know how is that science going to help us build a more sustainable ecosystem in our coasts? How is it gonna help protect us from stronger and perhaps uh, more frequent coastal storms? By the same token, the policymakers, the town councils, the transportation planners, the emergency managers, the coastal homeowners need to know what the best information is with respect to the risks that they're facing or where the opportunities are for building out new capabilities. Where are the appropriate places to um, undertake um aquaculture activities in a sustainable, clean, safe manner? Where should new marinas uh, be built or not built? Uh, how do we uh, develop natural, nature-based solutions to climate change? Where should we uh, develop uh, oyster hatcheries, for example? So it's a two-way street, and what, what CCMA provides is the meeting place, if you will. It's the forum for getting the scientific Uh, performers, the researchers, the technocrats together with that long list of policy and practice uh, uh, professionals from town councils to emergency managers together to talk about what the priorities are. That's the last thing is we're never going to have enough resources to address all of the issues necessary for things like coastal resilience. So how do we establish priorities? Part of that is where does society need investments? The other part is what is possible from science and technology? So CZMA is that meeting place, that intersection, if you will.
2: So I, you know, I have a couple of thoughts um, that I think build off of uh, Rick's observations. Is is, is one is um, in terms of the, the the new blue economy and 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 also the role of science. Um, I would say you know, really recognizing that uh, the Coastal Management Act really anticipated a time. When we really uh, needed to solve problems in a more holistic and integrated way, uh, it anticipated cumulative impacts. It anticipated the need. It might not have anticipated offshore wind, but it certainly was dealing directly with offshore um, oil and gas development. How do you work on that? You know, I do think the increasingly looking at the CZMA as a place where science and management can be linked up to really think about not only traditional environmental laws, which sort of manage past environmental harms based on past information. But how do we do forecasting and understand in a climate-changed environment, it's simply not sufficient to manage fisheries only based on uh, old data about um, catches? How do we think about managing environmental problems at the scale that they need to be addressed at, given climate change? Um, Coastal resilience cannot happen one bulkhead at a time it needs to happen at the community scale so i do think coastal management has all of those kind of elements to actually incorporate not only traditional environmental considerations but really thinking about this more integrated socioeconomic and scientifically informed choices that really can make old-fashioned terms like adaptive management a real-time decision-making framework. So again, I really do think that it's not only the successes and the specific kind of measurable economic kind of values and benefits that Rick described, but also thinking about how we can really understand those interactions better, and and that includes the impact on diverse communities and impact on underrepresented communities and how do we make sure that particularly in climate resilience that we are considering um, those impacts um, front and center uh, before we uh, discuss anything else and make sure that those are, are really addressed directly.
0: Thank you for finishing on that point, Tony. I think one one of the challenges I've seen looking back on 50 years of coastal zone management is, is perhaps the uh, under appreciation for um, how the coastal community has has helped or in, in some cases not helped uh, the underserved communities along the coast. And I think looking forward to the next 50 years, I hope we can do as a coastal community a better job to ensure that the resources and the support um, needed to to support underserved communities is, is going in that direction because the decisions we make, you know, are, are sort of magnified when you are more vulnerable due to Age, historical marginalization, etc. So, um, Dr. Spinner, any any thoughts? Final thoughts on on the the how we can use the CZMA for improving our equitable distribution of of resources in the coastal world?
1: Yeah, well, we haven't really talked much about environmental justice in this call, and but I, I do want to put a particular emphasis on that. I think that's. One of the things that the Biden-Harris administration is shining a light on that we we really need to focus on, and that is all the great work that we're doing through CCMA and cooperation with the states. We need to put a special emphasis on making sure we are serving the needs of the most vulnerable communities. And so the beauty of this, of course, is that CCMA facilitates exactly that. It's incumbent on us to put that emphasis on that part of the program. So I'd like to see you know, next time I talk to you in a few years, I'd like to say, look at everything we've done to really improve the uh,
0: delivery of products and services to underserved, vulnerable communities. Well, thank you, guys. I think this was just a fantastic conversation. I learned a lot, loved some of the, the um, discussion we had. If our listeners are interested in learning more, really looking forward to a, the series on the Coastal Zone Management Act. We're going to be hearing uh, much more about the history of the legislation. Um, uh, I can't remember Tony... Rick, one of you mentioned the Stratton Commission. I expect we'll hear more about what that is on the history. Uh, We're going to hear more about the very specific sections when you get to what does the CZMA actually do and how does it do it. You start diving into section 309 and 307, and so we'll hear some of those um, on on another episode. Uh, The Coastal Zone Management Act also authorized the National Estuarine Research Reserve System, which we didn't really talk about here, but we're going to have a whole um, pod dedicated to the NERs and the czma and then finally we're going to wrap up with really a look ahead what's coming in the next 50 years for coastal management and how the coastal zone management act might change so should be a good series um you guys kicked it off tremendously uh if you've listened to my pod you know my final question is always the same which is um what is your favorite beach or coastal area where do you go to rejuvenate get excited about about the work that we do so um tony i'll start with you and then we can have dr spinrad with a final word
2: i expect like A lot of people, I will cheat on this answer a little bit. Uh, I am at the Jersey Shore. It is where I grow up. I grew up. It is certainly some place that I go back to, but I have been so fortunate to make coastal management and coastal zone my career. So I have really been fortunate to go every place from American Samoa to Alaska and Kachemak Bay to um, the Great Lakes and really find every place I go, this really special place, which is the coast. And we all define it in our own way based on our own personal experience.
0: Okay. Come on, Tony, be specific. Where's your favorite place on the Jersey Shore?
2: Asbury Park, New Jersey. Okay, thank you. Bruce Springsteen.
1: Yeah, so uh, as a political appointee, I'll, I'll start with the same route Tony started in saying all the beaches are my favorites because they're all different. Um, and and I, by virtue of being in various jobs, I know I've enjoyed the opportunity to visit literally hundreds of beaches, and I enjoy every one of those. Now, if I take that political appointee hat off and, t- and, and answer, I'd, I'd have to say I'm a New York City kid. I grew up. Uh, within a stone's throw, of the East River. And while that's not a beach per se, It's a lot of attention right now on the urban ocean, if you will. And so there's a special place in my heart for the New York City urban coastline, if you will. The other one, I uh, spent uh, a lot of my early years in Oregon. Uh, in fact, I was in Oregon when Tom McCall was the governor. Uh, Tom McCall, you may remember, used the fir- first to use the phrase uh, about his concern about coastal condomania, he called it. Uh, And Oregon was a leading state in developing and allowing public access. So I also have a very special place in my heart for
0: all 300 miles of the Oregon coast. From the East River to the Oregon coast and Asbury Park, New Jersey, that's excellent. Uh, Well, thank you, Tony, Rick, really appreciate you joining me today. Uh, What a great conversation. Um, Let's do it again sometime.